Have you ever noticed how much life is like a horse race? Have you ever noticed how often the Bible tells us that it is? If you have studied the uh, New Testament, you know that in the book of Acts, uh, life is compared to a race like this. And then again, a little further along in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, we're given that particular analogy again. And then in 2 Timothy, and then in the letter to the Hebrews, and then in Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, we're told that life is not so unlike a horse race, not so unlike the Preakness, the Belmont Stakes, the Kentucky Derby. And, and in, in this way, we're told that we would do well, and I quote the Apostle Paul here in Acts, or rather 1 Corinthians, we would do well to run in such a way as to get the prize. That, that life is about running in such a way that when we cross the finish line, we get the prize. I want you to think about the journey you've been on in life. Because we all, if you think about it, start out in life pretty much the same way. We all, at the beginning, rush out of the gate of birth to cheers and applause from everybody around. Uh, It's the beginning of the whole race for us as we enter into this larger world. And, And the first quarter mile of that, the first 20, 25 years of that race is full of wonder and joy and as we're just feeling the blood of life rushing through us and experiencing the wondrous sounds and sights all around us and seeing the other racers around us with all of that precocious enthusiasm that's native to childhood and our adolescent years. And then as we hit our stride in the second quarter of the race, we really go to work as late adolescents and young adults always do to find our proper place in the pack. Now we are more attentive than ever before to where we actually are placing in the pack of other people running alongside of us. And our eyes at this point are gleaming with the thought of the professional or the social victory that we might have if we can just keep up the pace, just keep going, keep lengthening our stride. But by the half-mile mark, a deeper sense of reality often begins to set in for us. We may be temporarily exhilarated that we are further ahead of a lot of other people than we thought we would be. Or maybe we're momentarily discouraged that we're not as far along as we expected to be at this point in the race. Others are even passing us by, and that can be disheartening to us. In either case, it's during this middle portion of the race, during this midlife season, some of you know this for yourselves, that fatigue begins to set in. That we begin to feel the weariness of life's journey. That we wonder if we shouldn't adjust our course, our gait in life, make adjustments in the saddle, so to speak. And then at long last, if we keep on going, we pass the retirement marker and we enter into the final bend, the final quarter mile of life's race. Whether you consider yourself ahead of the pack at that particular moment or straggling 
way back, it's during this home stretch of life that in many ways you experience the greatest challenge that ever comes. This is the hardest part of the journey. Some of you are there now and you know what I'm talking about. Others of us, are, are, we can see that turn coming in our lives. It's the hardest part of the journey because so much of what we had counted on, been able to count on, is now starting to give up on us. Is not is letting us down. I was given a, a piece of prose by a friend some time ago that makes this point in a humorous way. He says, "You know you're getting older when almost everything hurts, and when what doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore, and when all the names in your little black book end in MD." You know you're getting older when you get winded playing chess, when you actually look forward to a dull evening. You know you're getting older when a member of the opposite sex blows in your ear and you complain of the draft. (laughs) When you're 17 around the neck and 42 around the waist and 126 around the golf course, you know you're getting older when you try to straighten the wrinkles in your socks and you discover, I'm not wearing socks. You know you're getting older when a little gray-haired old lady or man tries to help you across the street and it turns out that the helper is your wife or your husband. On a good day, of course, right now, for a lot of us, we can laugh at this stuff. Right? This seems kind of humorous and distant from us. But for some of us, this is a much harder reality to reconcile with all we've hoped for in life, with all we've enjoyed in life, actually, I talk with uh, friends and who, older friends who, who have experienced the deep loneliness that can come in this time. As it seems that the crowd around them is thinning out. The people they've been running with for so long are now disappearing one by one by one. I've heard of others speak of the frustration, the depression actually, of living in a world where those who look around at you kind of regard you now as just meant to be sent out to pasture or destined for the glue factory in short order. And one of the very hardest parts of this section of the journey is that this this body that we have been able to rely upon to run this race begins to sag and to lag and to break down, to let us down to the point where we finally are really feeling the reality that death is coming for us. It's not going to make an exception It's coming for us all. I'll never forget years ago, lying in a CCU at Hinsdale Hospital in the middle of the night, having just had a heart attack. The prime of my life, I thought, I'm going to live forever. I suddenly have this heart attack, and I'm lying there by myself in the CCU and just listening to the beeping of the machines and the sound of the air conditioner. And I'm thinking, wow, death's coming for me one day too. I'm not going to be an exception to the rule. The Apostle Paul, I think, understood this about life. I think that he would have understood, in fact, the the discouragement that comes when we reach that particular point of life. At one point in, in his journey, Paul had been, in the eyes of the world, a blue ribbon winner in a whole range of race categories. 
Paul uh, had been a teacher of the law, as some of you know. He was a graduate of Gamaliel's School of Law, the finest law school in the ancient world. He was an immensely respected guy with all the credentials to, to run far and fast in life. His papers uh, read Citizen of Rome. It was a very small group of people that could claim a pedigree like Paul had. He was a thoroughbred in every single sense, and it granted him all kinds of privileges and opportunities and open doors in life. And then following his conversion from Judaism to Christianity, uh, Paul had gone on to found all of these churches. He had, he had built up a name throughout all of the ancient world, at least within the Christian community, and increasingly within the Roman world as well. Paul was well-known and respected, regarded as one of the people ahead of the pack. But at the time that he writes Philippians... At the time that he's writing the letter that he does to the church at Philippi, Paul is well past the the so-called prime of life. He has rounded that uh, final turn of life. He's an older man now. He's only a few years from death. In reality, he's locked inside of the dark dankness of a Roman prison. And if there was anybody who, who would have been understood to have been at this point in despair and discouragement and feeling like there was nothing more possible for him in this world. It might well have been the Apostle Paul at this particular moment of his life. As he stared down those few lengths towards the finish line. But listen to what he says. Listen to the words of the Apostle. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task of testifying to the good news, the gospel of God's grace. Over these past several weeks, we've been thinking a lot together about the nature of the gospel. We've been trying to get our arms around the good news of God's grace, to understand what it really means, uh, to, to grasp its significance for ourselves and for the people we know and love. And I've been trying to suggest all throughout this journey that the good news is gooder than we've heard. There are more dimensions to the gospel than we often have settled for. The, the, the gospel is not merely a, a, a mental doctrine. It's not merely a, um, a one-time uh, decision of the mind. The gospel is really a, a plan and process for holistic salvation. It's a description of God's intention to renew and redeem all things. Uh, not just individual persons, but the entirety of his creation. This is the good news of God's grace. And at the close of our service today, I'm going to summarize all of what I hope we've learned over the course of this series. But right now, I just want to underline that it is precisely this painful, difficult reality of our human bodily mortality which makes the gospel Such good news. I mean, really, such amazingly good news. If you're struggling with aging yourself, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you are, because it would tire you out too much. (laughs) But if you're struggling with aging yourself, 
I went out on Friday just before the snow deadline, raked up 11 bags of leaves, and, and then dug out my driveway yesterday with all that wet, heavy snow. I am feeling my age today. I really am. If I don't seem too sprightly up here, you know why. I'm stiff. If you're feeling your age, or maybe you're seeing aging process overtake somebody you desperately love, or, or, or if you've ever buried a child, or have you seen another loved one leave you too early, if you agonize as you read the news of the horror of terror and the violence that is done so randomly and rapaciously to innocent people, as their lives are stolen from them, as they're just moving through life's journey, if you've, if you've ever felt yourself with your heart breaking over the ravages of, of, of deformity, of disease, of random accidents that take people away. If you've ever felt the, the horrible weight of human mortality, put your hope in the God of the gospel. That's my message to you today. Put your hope in the good news of God's grace. You see, according to the scripture lessons that we're looking at today, there's going to come a day when all of us are going to cross over life's finish line in one condition or another. It could happen at any time, as you know. It's not, it's not on a timer. It's not on a, 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 on a schedule you can predict. But when you cross over that line, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ... Here's the good news. Here's the very good news. You're going to claim the prize at that moment in your life. You're going to find yourself at that moment that seems the moment of greatest defeat and loss, actually arriving at the moments of greatest victory and hope, because you're going to claim the prize. And that prize will make all of the sufferings of this life seem like nothing more than flies on the sweat of a champion. Because one day you will be resurrected, says St. Paul, just as Jesus was. You'll die hard and you'll rise in power just as Jesus was, is the promise of the gospel. Let me quote Paul, if I may, in Philippians chapter 3. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And I want you to really focus in on that last phrase, like his glorious body. Because Jesus doesn't give us, leave us guessing as to what our life beyond the grave will look like. He comes to show us what it will look like. It will be like his glorious body. So the question I want to pose to you today is, what is that like? What do we know about Christ's body after his resurrection? What what does the Bible tell us about that? Well, as I read the, the various texts that describe the encounters that people had with Jesus... And there are so many of them, so many encounters people have with the risen Jesus in the Bible. So I read those texts, you know, 
two words in particular sort of pop out to, to describe what his resurrected body was like. And the two words are this, tangible and transcendent. Tangible and transcendent. Christ's resurrected body was tangible. It was not this kind of wispy, floating, shimmering, see-through, pass-through kind of apparition that we see in the ghost stories and the sci-fi movies. It was nothing like that. It was a robust, tangible body. It could be, it could be touched and felt. It could move things. It cooked breakfast for his friends on the day of the resurrection. Jesus was waiting for them, the resurrected Christ, and made a breakfast for his friends. It was wonderfully robust and rich. And the very unique personality of Jesus could be experienced in that body in an almost tangible kind of way. He could talk and he could walk and he could relate to other people. And your body will be like that following your death. Christ's resurrection body was also transcendent, we're told. In fact, it took a little while for people to recognize him. Even those who knew Jesus best, it took them a little while to recognize, oh, this is Jesus. Because there was something that had changed. He had transcended his former physical limits in significant ways that made him now different in critical fashion. Christ had been crucified, as you know. I mean, there's nothing you can do to a human body. Uh, I suppose blowing it up, maybe, is the only thing that compares. There's nothing else you can do to ravage a human body quite so badly as crucifixion. He had been put in the ground. He had been buried. But when he appears to his disciples, he is the opposite of a corpse. Some of you have seen a body after the the body has died. You've seen how there's just a weightiness, a heaviness to it. it is, it's like everything that was life has been dropped out of the bottom of that body. Jesus was the opposite of that. When they met the resurrected Christ, it was like everything that is life animated the body and gave it a quality and a power greater than a mere human body could ever be. The resurrection of body of Jesus was just beautifully dazzling, dazzlingly beautiful and amazingly strong. It could appear behind locked doors. It could move from place to place without any apparent effort. It was no longer subject to pain or tears or, or, or death in any uh, way at all. So here's the good news. That's your future. That's what you will be like one day. Tangible and transcendent. This is the kind of body God will give to all those upon whom his favor rests. For in a flash, says St. Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, transformed, and our mortal bodies, these mortal bodies we have, the ones that are dying right, uh, right now, that are in the process of dying, these mortal bodies will be clothed with immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory. Can I hear an amen for that? Amen. 
So here's the deal. These bodies we've got right now, they're a gift. I know there are parts about it, your body, you're not wild about. There are parts of your body you probably think is pretty good. And they are a gift we're meant to take care of. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says. Think about how you are taking care of this wonderful gift you've been given. But here's what is so important to remember. In this world is all, that it's all about trying to preserve these bodies. They are not your final home. Okay? They, they, they are, in a sense, training vehicles. Right? My, my son has got a, a pickup truck. It's a, an old pickup truck. It's a small pickup truck. But he knows it's not his final vehicle. He's already got his eyes on that greater vehicle he's, he's aiming for. He's gotten a job, I'm pleased to say, and working to get that vehicle. He's, he's on the race toward that prize in his mind. Your body, it's a training vehicle in a sense. It's a preparation for, a hint at what is to come. This life is about learning how to manage the small things God gives us so we can one day manage the great things of his kingdom. I just love how C.S. Lewis describes all of this in his marvelous book, Miracles. These small and perishable bodies we now have, says Lewis, were given to us as ponies are given to school children. We're meant to learn to manage them faithfully. Not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may be able to ride bareback, confident and rejoicing those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which even now expect us with impatience, pawing and pawing and snorting in the stables of the king. That's what we're headed for. Not that the gallop that we'll know then would be of any value unless it were a gallop with the king himself. But how else, since he has retained his charger, his resurrection body, how else should we accompany him on the glorious rides that will be commonplace when we are with him in heaven? Some years ago, The great televangelist, the great global evangelist, Billy Graham, the great advisor to multiple presidents, the best-known Christian name on planet Earth other than Jesus, gave one of his very final public addresses. His uh, hometown, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, threw a party for Billy Graham, who was now racked with the ravages of Parkinson's disease. It seemed almost impossible. He had been one of the, the most beautiful, tall, handsome um, patrician of men at one point in his life with a beautiful voice that never wavered, steely blue eyes that could pierce a crowd of 100,000. 
Now Parkinson's disease was doing its work. And he was trembling and he was shuffling and his voice was quavering and he made his way to the, to the platform and to the lectern in front of this big luncheon audience. And he stood there for just a moment and he gazed out at the crowd as he has looked out upon millions and millions of people he was seeking to lead to Christ all across planet Earth over his many years. And he said, you know, I am reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist, who was once aboard a train bound from Princeton to New York City. And then Graham goes on to describe the story of how the conductor came down the aisle clicking the tickets of the passenger. And when he arrived at the uh, seat where Albert Einstein was sitting, um, Einstein reached into his vest pocket for his ticket and couldn't find it. And then he reached into his trousers pockets on both sides and couldn't find it. No ticket. And then with increasing panic on his face, he opened his briefcase and he sorted through the papers and still couldn't find it. And then he looked at the seat under next to him that was uh, bare and searched around and still couldn't find it. And there was this look of tremendous anxiety and embarrassment and concern on his face. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know you. It's okay. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Let's not worry about it. And the conductor moved on down the aisle. Well, as the conductor got to the back of the, of, of the train, about to go into the next car, he turned around just to take one last look, make sure the doctor had settled down. And instead, to his amazement, he saw Einstein down on the floor of the train on his hands and knees, looking underneath the seat, scouring around to try and find the ticket. And the conductor's heart was broken, and he ran back to the old man, And he says, Dr. Einstein, I said to you, I know you. In fact, all of us know who you are. You don't need a ticket. You don't need a ticket. At which point, Einstein straightened himself up. And then with a great clarity, looked into the eyes of the conductor and said, Young man, I know who I am. But I do not know where I am going. The old horse of evangelicalism paused at that moment and looked out across that North Carolina crowd. And he said, you know, I'm wearing a a brand new suit today. My, uh, My family tells me I've gotten slovenly in my old age. I used to be, I used to be fastidious. So I went out and I bought a new suit for this luncheon, and for one other occasion. This is the suit that I'm going to be buried in, said Billy Graham. But when you hear that I'm dead, I do not want you to remember the suit. Don't remember the suit. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I know where I'm going. And I hope that that's true for all of you, he said. Because when Billy Graham gets there, he is actually going to be given a new suit. He will find there waiting for him a greater mount 
a winged, shining, and world-shaking horse on which Billy Graham will gallop with the king for as long as he needs to. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, declares the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of those who put their trust in Christ and the life everlasting. I believe our final citizenship is not on this dusty track of this earth. No matter how loudly the crowds are cheering on any track out there, it will not compare with the sound of the cheers of the clouds of witnesses that will await us when we finally cross that finish line. We must believe in the awesome stables of the king that await us, says the apostle himself. Hear his words. And so, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I want to encourage you this day, wherever you are on the track, whatever condition the horse is in right now, to press on toward that prize yourself. Would you pray with me? Grace, grace, the gospel of your grace. In this we put our trust. Renew in us your spirit's strength, Lord, to run the next lengths of this race we're in with faith in our soul, with hope in our mind, with love in our heart. And then grant by your grace we may one day cross that heavenly finish line and be clothed with immortality and a life that is more than this life. In the name of Jesus who ran that good race before us, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.